we continue in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. If you can open your Bibles to the New Testament, the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and number three is Luke. Uh, the longest book in the New Testament. It's the third gospel. We're in Luke chapter 1. As you're turning, let me welcome those who might be watching our live stream this morning or the recorded message. It's wonderful that you're tuning in. Don't turn away from the Word of God. Let it bless you and minister to you. There's much help here today. We will be reading a, a large segment at the gospel, beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Before we get to the birth of Jesus, we're going to hear about someone else. The one who would go before and announce the coming of Jesus. We know him as John the Baptist. Here's the announcement about him, starting in verse 5 of Luke chapter 1. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah in the division of Abijah, And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak, until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. 
After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word. May he bless all who hear, believe, and obey it. Amen. Amen. We're beginning the Gospel of Luke and we're going to hear the story of Jesus. But before we get to the main guest, the main character, we have the introductory character. The one who's going to introduce Jesus. Um, A lot of times that's an overlooked role. In our world, people are nervous about public speaking, and they're even nervous about introducing a public speaker. Have you ever thought about that task? Who is it that gets to introduce the speaker? The more famous the speaker, the more important the introducer ought to be. In a recent uh, article in the Harvard Business Review, a professional speaker, a lady who had been a speaker and facilitator and counselor for over 20 years, she said she'd been introduced thousands of times by countless meeting planners, conference organizers, etc. But nevertheless, all those introductions of her, the guest speaker, fell into four categories. And she shares them because they're not that great. But he said, she said it's very common. Number one, uh, the, the introduction was flattery. Our guest needs no introduction. Or the introduction was do-it-yourself. You can read our guest's biography in your programs. Or the introduction was a a regurgitation. Let me read to you what's in the program about our guest. Or there was the optimistic uh, introduction. I've never met our guest, but I'm sure she'll be great. (laughs) Introductions. Uh, can be better than that and should be better than that. The, the main goal of an introduction is to, to transition the audience from what, from what you're thinking about to the, the main speaker, the main event, to turn your thinking and to focus you upon the person to come. That's the role of the one to do the introductions Here in the Gospel of Luke, we're getting ready for Jesus. And John the Baptist is sent as the forerunner, as the messenger who will prepare the way of the Lord. Yet in telling us about John the Baptist and his coming, he doesn't come until the end. He's bored. He's not active in today's passage. It's just the announcement. In this passage, not only do we see who God is preparing to send as the messenger, but we ourselves are blessed with an additional lesson about a couple of important things along the way. How are we introduced to John the Baptist? Here is a wonderful and powerful lesson for us today. Our first heading this morning is the first of three dramatic scenes. This passage, verse 5 to 25, has three scenes to it. So the first opening scene just sets the stage as it were it talks about Zachariah and Elizabeth ready and waiting and going about their lives but it begins by describing the tough times in which they lived in the days of Herod king of Judea and that Herod there's more than one Herod in the Bible right you know which one this one is this is well we want to say he's the worst 
but he's not as well known. This is Herod the Great, and he's great in evil. Of course, his son is also great in evil, and it was his son who would uh, give the, uh, the command to destroy the children uh, at the birth of Jesus. Um, this Herod the Great ruled about 37 B.C. up until uh, around the turn of B.C. A.D. The Romans had installed him because his father had good relations with the Roman general and dictator, a guy named Julius Caesar. So this Herod's dad knew Julius Caesar, and they said uh, to the dad, hey, we're going to send your son over to Palestine. He better get the place in order. Herod the Great did a lot of construction, but he ruled with a heavy hand, and he was the face and hand of the Roman occupiers in Jerusalem. And it was during his decades of ruling in Jerusalem, according to scholars, there was a great secular displacement of the Jewish national ruling order. Remember in the Old Testament, the priests were in charge of the civil as well as the religious life of the people. Under Herod, they were pushed into a corner. And those religious leaders could only oversee the religious stuff. So that by the time of Jesus, the Sanhedrin, the high priest, those leaders among the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they had had a lot of pushing around. And a lot of power had been taken from them. This Herod represents the tough times in which Zechariah and Elizabeth lived and the tough times in which God chooses to work. Let's not forget that. Especially when we say we're living in unparalleled and difficult times. Oh man, we get done with one pandemic and now they're talking about monkeypox or who knows what's coming next. There's political turmoil, there's turmoil in the Middle East. There's turmoil, there's change. It's a difficult time to live. And Christians are no longer well received in our society. These are the times in which God does great work. Zechariah and Elizabeth are ready and waiting. These are the upright people that the Lord loves. We're told something about them. We're told the priest's name, Zechariah, and his division. There was a family structure to these tribes of the priests and Levites. Uh, and he came from Abijah's division. Uh, he had a wife. And it, what do we know about his wife? We know her name, which is significant, Elizabeth. We'll hear more about her later. But what else do we learn? We learn that she was also from the priestly tribes. He had married the daughter of a priest in the line of Aaron. It's pretty cool when I noticed my eldest son uh, fell in love and married a girl who was a pastor's kid like he was. I said, that, that'll work out well. Here we have two upright people from this promising, pious family tree, but they aren't just inheriting a righteousness. Take note. If your parents are elders and deacons, that doesn't make a difference for you. What are you doing? We see what Zacharias and Elizabeth are doing. Verse 6, they were both righteous. They walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. 
They're noted for their upright living. It's not enough just to grow up in the church. Our country is filled with people who grew up in the church. But are we disciples? Are we actively serving the Lord we ourselves know and love? And when it says that these two were righteous, as uh, Philip Ryken points out, they were distinguished by their godliness. Not that they were sinless, of course, he says, but they had a right relationship with God and they lived in outward conformity with the law and God regarded them as righteous. They had a right relationship and they walked in the light of God's law. And the text is saying it that way so that we don't think they were self-righteous or righteous by their works. But there was a dark spot in this sunny picture. We're told the, the good and we're also told this dark and sad fact in verse 7. But they had no child. Elizabeth was barren. They, they didn't have a single child. And they'd already kind of passed the childbearing years. That door, that window seemed to have closed. They were advanced in years. Oh, man, that's so sad. Well, it's not only sad, but in the ancient world, to be childless was treated with shame and disgrace culturally. It happened because people feared and understood the sovereignty of God. They assumed that maybe someone sinned, that this birth never took place. So there was disgrace, and some people viewed it as a punishment. We know from the Bible that when children are born with a disability or children aren't born, it is not necessarily a punishment for sin. As one preacher said, our sins are not always the cause of our suffering. Do you hear me? That's clear in the scriptures. And we have to be careful when you hear news of someone in our congregation or someone passed when something difficult happens to them. Well, who knows what they did to deserve that? Stop that presumption. The Bible has told us that God was pleased with these people. This is not a punishment. God has a purpose. Do you see here in their barrenness that it is something God will use for good? It's the dark spot. And, and verse 4 is oh so ominous. Excuse me, verse 6, 7 is oh so ominous. But we know where it's going. And we've read the rest. We know that God is not going to leave it in this circumstance, but this suffering, this difficulty that they truly endured had a purpose. Do you know in the Bible there is a long list of barren or childless women that God blessed abundantly? Blessed them so much that here two, three thousand years later we know their names? Who's the first? Sarah, wife of Abram. 
Abram means father, and then it's changed to Abraham, father of many. Ha, ha, ha. He didn't have any kids when his name was changed. All he had was the promise of God that he was going to have a, what, speak up, I'm going to have kids. And he'd come over on his cane. Abraham was old. Sarah was old. They laughed at the thought of having a child, no less a, a string of descendants like the sand on the seashore. Read about it in Genesis 18. Sarah was barren. And God had great plans for Abraham and Sarah, didn't he? Amazing. How about young Rachel? Excuse me, we'll get to Rachel. Rebecca first, the wife of Isaac. Rebecca was barren for 25 years. Then Rachel, the wife of Jacob, the, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Each of them had a wife who was childless for a season. Rachel had no children. Leah had all the children at first until Rachel had that son, Joseph. We could go on. There are other women in the Bible whose names we know that were childless for a season. What about Ruth? Well, we know Ruth was like the great-grandmother of King David. Well, at first, Ruth was a Moabite She married a guy from Bethlehem, but they had no children for 10 years. What does that do to someone? To be barren, it's something God designs to use for his glory and the good of others in the case of Ruth. And we know, or we get to the story of Samuel. Samuel's mother was Hannah, but she was barren for years, and it was crying, weeping Hannah. She had in trouble for crying so much and praying so much. Do we see that God will use suffering? And that's just one example, barrenness. He can and does use it for his glory. We need to have a biblical view of suffering, of difficulties that God puts in our life where day in and day out, day in and day out, it gets hard And it's frustrating for us sometimes. We don't understand what God's doing. But God is at work. God is at work. In tough times and in tough circumstances. Do you have tough circumstances? I know the stories of many of you. Our God is at work. Our God is at work. I like what uh, the plain spoken scholar Dale Ralph Davies says, God tends to begin his finest works in the face of human hopelessness and human weakness. Okay, I think of that as a pastor of this church. I'm praying for God to be at work here. And oh boy, what does that mean? How is he going to start that work? Let's have this biblical view. This first scene is given to us to show against this background the beauty of the working of God. So let's move on to the second scene of our three scenes today. Gabriel, the angel, and some good news appear. We're going to see prayers and the answers to prayers, even a surprising answer to prayer. Now in verse 8, talks about this priest, Zechariah, and it was his turn to serve. In other words, he lived out in the country, right? He didn't live in the city of Jerusalem, but at a certain time of the year, there were about 18,000 priests active in Israel back in those days. It could be that high. 
And so they'd come by the hundreds and thousands when it was their turn to serve for maybe a two-week window twice a year. They'd come to Jerusalem. So he'd get called up, and the plans were he'd leave home, kiss his wife goodbye, and go to Jerusalem. And he'd live with the guys in the priest's dormitory and do the work, and they had various jobs, hundreds and thousands of them. And while they were there, somebody got to put the incense in the the altar of incense inside the holy place. This isn't the one time of year going into the Holy of Holies. That's something else. Only the high priest would do that. This is the daily, in the morning and the evening, to maintain that altar of incense, that it would remain burning, to put on the ingredients, to bring the flame. To do that, they just send one guy. And how do they pick him out of the thousands that happen to be on duty that day? They would cast lots. And that's how the language here. Um, it says, he was chosen by lot. That's a specific verb. So he goes, wow, it's my day. I'm already old. I've been doing this for decades. I'm one of the veterans. I never got picked. I got picked. Send a letter to my wife. I got picked. I'm going in tomorrow. What an exciting day that would be. An incredible opportunity chosen. A once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Never to be repeated once you had done it. Your name was out of the running. A red-letter day for Zechariah in the holiest place among the Jewish people. And for some reasons, uh, most commentators think that he went in for the evening sacrifice, perhaps because of the large crowd that was outside praying at that time. And you need to remember something. What is this altar of incense that uh, he would bring and maintain? What was the role of the incense in the ancient temple? This is important. Incense represented prayer. The smoke of the incense arising, may it be a sweet scent to our God's smell, our prayers ascend. That burning altar of incense reminded the people that they were being prayed for. The priests would maintain it. And, listen, the priests would pray for the people. Oh Lord, be merciful to this people, your people. Keep covenant with your people and save them, I pray, as he fueled the incense. Prayers being made for the people of God interceding for them. It's at that very moment on his red letter day, he was so excited. Can you just feel his heart beating away? Here I am. I've I've never gotten to do this before. He's remembering the words. He's remembering the duty. It's getting done. And all of a sudden, beside him stood not just an angel of God, one of the archangels of God, Gabriel, whose presence filled the void Aside the altar of incense, most likely between the altar and the door to the Holy of Holies, he stood, he appeared, and Zechariah trembled. He was filled with fear. He was troubled, and fear fell upon him. That's the normal reaction to an angel. How do you know if you've bumped into a real angel, not disguised as someone you know, Uh, you're struck with fear. They're an awesome, powerful, spiritual being that can appear. And when they appear, people start shaking in their boots. 
There's not a single Bible tough guy who sees an angel and says, hey, can I help you? How dismissive we are of the power of God's holy servants. How one angel can, can take on a cause for God and turn back thousands of human beings in their wickedness. This is the archangel Gabriel, the very one who had appeared to Daniel in the Old Testament, the very one who would appear to Mary and Joseph. The name Gabriel means power of God. And this fear at the sight of the angel, one scholar describes it, such fear at the sight of an angelic being is hardly irrational, uh, deeper than the element of surprise. Being startled or caught off guard is surely, for most who experience it, an instantaneous apprehension of being confronted by a presence of the holy and knowing oneself to be unprepared for such an encounter. That scholarly language for saying his, his fear wasn't just he was surprised. But it's the holiness of the being that was before him in that holy place. The ancient first, second century preacher John Chrysostom said, the most righteous of men cannot see an angel without feeling fear. So why is the angel there? Well, he goes on to tell why he's there. An angel of the Lord appeared, verse 12, Zechariah was troubled, verse 13. The angel said to him, do not be afraid. Angels are pretty gracious, aren't they? Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your prayer is heard. Your prayer is being answered. And he goes on to tell how it's going to be answered. What had Zechariah prayed? There's a good question. You're a Bible person, right? You got your Bible open. What had Zechariah been praying? In those very moments, as he handled the incense and stood at the altar of incense, what had he been praying? He had been praying for the people of Israel, for God, the covenant-keeping God, to save them, to forgive them their sins and bring them into heaven. That was the duty of the priest. That's what he was praying then and there. But we also know what Zechariah and Elizabeth had probably been praying for decades. And most likely they had ceased praying. Well, since they were already past that age, you know, menopause kind of closes the door. So why pray anymore? I don't think they had prayed for that for years. But the angel says, your prayer has been answered. I submit to you that both prayers are answered with one solution. The Lord would safeguard his people. The Lord would be sending them the Messiah. And before the Messiah, God would send the messenger to prepare the way for the Messiah. God was at work in salvation history. This was a juncture and a significant development. I have answered that prayer. I'm going to send the messenger. And he's going to come to you and Elizabeth. You're going to have a baby boy. Two prayers answered in one act. 
God is so amazing, isn't he, when it comes to prayer? You may be praying for one thing, and he does something that's so much bigger and better. I, I, I didn't think of that. Oh, I really want this. Whether you're pursuing a new job or whether you really see something as being a great advantageous thing and it doesn't happen yet, but when something else happens and as that happens, you go, oh, this is so much better for multiple reasons. You see the work of God. You know what? God can multitask. If you, if you didn't think about that. He can hear your prayers and the prayers of others and he works and orchestrates for his glory and our good. He answers both prayers. You get a baby and the, the nation of Israel gets the messenger, the, the spirit of Elijah who was promised. Let's look at this child. What do we say? The angel said to him, uh, you and your wife Elizabeth, will bear, she will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. Not Zechariah Jr., not Bar Zechariah, son of Zechariah. Call him John. That's a surprise. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he will not drink wine or strong drink. That refers to like the Nazarite practice of many prophets who restrain themselves. The deliverer Samson had strictures like that put on him. And he will go, verse 17, he will go before him, so somebody else is coming, go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to do what? To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. We don't only get a son, we get this messenger. This name John surprises us, and we'll get to that passage where the, the mute man writes down his name is John. We'll get to that. It means the Lord is gracious. The, the Hebrew word has like the beginnings of Yahweh in, in, in an expression. And this John is the Greek translation of that Hebrew name. The Lord is gracious. You see, he's being sent to God's people because although they are the covenant people, they still need conversion, they need to be ready, and they need to accept the Messiah. Jews without Jesus are not saved. That's another sermon, but that's what it's implied here. And what is implied here is fulfilled prophecy. If you know the last book of the Old Testament, do you know what it is? If you can find Matthew chapter 1, you just turn a page and you'll see the last book of the Old Testament. Take a peek. Malachi. Malachi. And in Malachi chapter 4, you'll read this in verses 5 and 6. One of the last prophecies of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is a promised son. This is a fulfillment of prophecy, son. This will be a prophet son like Elijah. This guy's name is going to be John. It's not Elijah reincarnated. Jesus does say this is Elijah, quote unquote. The one who was prophesied, but it's in the spirit of Elijah. The last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. That's this guy. And he's going to begin this 
work of repentance and reclamation so that we are ready for our Savior, Messiah. That's the one who is promised here. But notice that he's not just an Old Testament prophet. He's a transitional figure. Old Testament prophets, the Spirit of God might descend on them and depart, might descend on them and depart. John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit. And not just once he starts his ministry, but even in his mother's womb. As we'll see when Mary comes to visit Elizabeth with Johnny in her womb, he's going to kick and react to the presence of Jesus in the womb of Mary. Amazing stuff. But with John, he's the last of the Old Testament prophets. And as we'll see when we get to Luke 16, verse 16, the Old Testament era lasted, the law and the prophets, quote, until John came. Jesus points that out. The law and the prophets were until John. But something new is afoot because of this promised child. So what happened that day in the temple? You got to meet an angel and live to tell about it. And you heard this good news. Doesn't it say good news? That's the same word as the gospel. There's good news afoot. God is at work. God is going to answer prayers in the direction of salvation and fix your barrenness. Good news. (coughs) What kind of happy dance does Zachariah do? Well, Zachariah, the old fellow, I'm sure he could have danced. But what does he do? Let's look at the third scene because it's an unexpected scene and there's doubt here and there's some sort of asking for a sign. Here we go in verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife, well, he doesn't say she's old. He hedges a little bit. She's advanced in years. How kind. But how great a spiritual stumble. He's not the first. He's not the only one to stumble. Me? You're picking me? You're doing this for me? How do I know? We remember in the Old Testament, Gideon, he gets called into service. He says, "Uh, can I verify this? Can I have a sign? And then you know the story about the fleece, the, the lamb's wool that was dry, that was wet, and... He had all sorts of little hoops he wanted God to jump through to give him assurance. That was then. This is now. Zechariah knew that story. Zechariah knew the names of Sarah and Rachel and Rebecca and Ruth. He knew his Bible. How can I say that? Well, because he and his wife, when they were barren, he prayed. He said, Lord, you can do something about this barrenness. It's been a year. It's been two years. It's been ten years. Lord, the window's closing. We know that you can help. You can turn this around. We believe in your power. But just when he's been told his prayer is answered, it's like he's saying it's too late. How can God change it now? Because in addition to being barren, we're old. So that must be a hurdle God can't jump over. This is a stumbling due to doubt and disbelief in God. Very sad. 
He forgets the whole track record of the very God to whom he was praying. And he forgets those requests which he once believed God could handle. Douglas Milne said this in his sermon on this text, How often do we forfeit the intended blessings of the Lord for similar reasons? We do not believe or act on his word because we justify our fears and discredit God's promises. We're old. I don't think things can change now. It's been too long. What kind of talk is that? That's that's being hindered by earthly horizons. That hesitation is the voice of doubt and disbelief, not the voice of faith. So he requests a sign. He says, how? How am I going to know? He doesn't take Gabriel at his word. He's looking at things from merely a human point of view. As Phil Riken said, he had his biology right, but his theology wrong. How about you? You you pray for things, right? You pray for the unsaved loved ones. Why do you do that? Because you know that God can change a heart. God can take someone going this direction and turn them around to go this direction in service and joy for Jesus. We know that. We believe that. But what if God does it? Or what if God does answer your prayer in a different way? Are you ready to accept that and acknowledge his power at work? He's looking for a sign. And that's when the angel drops his name and his mission and who it was that gave him the message. He says, do you realize who you're, who you're questioning? We don't know the tone of voice, but the angel replied, I am Gabriel. Why would he tell him his name? What does that account? Well, Gabriel had spoken to Daniel. Gabriel was an angel with a name. That's a pretty big angel. Almost every Jewish boy and girl knew that name. We have our superhero lore in our secular times. We talk about Superman and Batman. What kid doesn't know Superman? What Jewish boy or girl didn't know the name of Gabriel? He says, I'm Gabriel. I was with Daniel in the lion's den. I was with God's people. I serve God's people and I give messages for Jehovah to the likes of you. He goes on to say, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. That's where I stand. That's where I came from. And I was sent to speak to you, to bring you this good news. And how do you receive the good news? With doubt, disbelief, hesitation. So behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. They weren't just the angel's words, it was the decree of God. How much trouble we bring upon ourselves because we hesitate to believe the word of God. When God's word says it, we ought to believe it and obey it. 
share it, live in its light. Yes, the Lord welcomes our pursuit of understanding. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's a prayer that Jesus answers. And you know what's funny here? The more in the irony type of funny. Zechariah was kind of concerned. How, how am I going to know all this? I'm old. How? He's asking for this sign. He gets a sign. Did you notice that? I had never noticed that until this week in my study. He gets the very sign. You want, you want to know how you know you're going to have a baby? Let me give you a sign. In this next moment and until that baby's born, mute, can't talk. Silence that stammering, disbelieving tongue. Hush! The old venerable Bede, one of the early translators of the Hebrew Scriptures into Latin, commented, he said, Gabriel gives him the sign he asked for, that he who spoke in unbelief might now, by silence, learn to believe. Well, how's he going to learn anything if he's mute? He goes out, he's trying to tell, describe the angel. They think he's lost his experience. They figure something happened. Do you realize, I think within, by the end of the day, he realized that if this mute threat is true, this is what Dale Ralph Davies points out. If this mute threat is true, he said, I'm going to be mute and I'm mute. Then the child promise threat or promise is true. He asked for a sign. He got one. It was just a bit of a rebuke. So as he can't talk and he's frustrated, it occurs to him, this angel does what he promises. God does what he promises. I, I, I'm done with my duty in just a couple of days. I'm going to go back to Elizabeth. I don't know how I'm going to explain it because I can't talk, but we will have a child. We will have a child. He probably floated home with that good news ringing in his head, even though he was mute. I hope you see Zachariah as someone who was surprised by his answered prayer but then captivated by the sovereignty of God in a whole new way. It was his parenting, by the way, that fueled John the Baptist with a great unhindered trust in the sovereignty of God. The child is born. He goes back. The child that would bring Zechariah and Elizabeth joy and the nation joy Many will rejoice his birth. The child comes. And that sets the stage for the birth and ministry of the Messiah. Because they knew that this was the messenger to prepare the way. The Lord is coming. The Savior is coming. And in a couple months time, there's about three months separation. They will see. Messiah was coming. That is good news. And it's gospel good news that God sends what we need in his time and in his way for his glory. And he sent Jesus. 
when the time was full, he sent his son, born of a virgin, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, guilty such as us. While we were yet sinners, Christ came and died for us. There is good news in the Bible for us today. The good news is God has sent his son and now God sends preachers and and Christians to witness to the coming of Jesus and to the forgiveness of sins that is in Jesus. And in a sense, there is still a getting ready because Jesus is coming again. He will return and at his return, it will be the day of judgment. Will you be ready for that day? Will you be in a right relationship with him? Will you believe his word today? Let me give you three words in closing, three lessons, three important applications. They're pretty straightforward. The first is this, pray. Pray to the God who delights to answer, but on his timetable, not yours. And his answers may just surprise you. Let me ask, especially the Bible thinkers among us, Why did Luke tell this story about Zechariah chatting it up with the angel and kind of getting into trouble? Why why not just leave that part out? It's not critical, is it? You can just say John the Baptist came, blessing of God to this older couple, and then Jesus came. Why tell us his surprise at the answer to prayer? Why tell us of his little rebuke? Because it's a lesson about praying. It's a lesson about praying by faith and receiving God's answers and submitting to them. Isn't it? And it's in the Bible because it's showing us how God works. He does answer prayer. He hears prayer. And he will do it in his time and his place. So you better believe what you pray. And when God answers, receive that and submit to that. We'll see later today in the family class the significant role of prayer in the life of Nehemiah. Is prayer significant in your life? Do you really believe that God can and might just do what you're asking? Even that great big prayer. Keep praying. Second application is to be steadfast. And do not misjudge your suffering. I'm not even going to say if you suffer. It's more or less when you suffer. When those difficult things of life are yours and they pile up. And some people, they carry more than others. We see it. We know. And sometimes it's just very real, physical, financial, emotional, relationship suffering. Sometimes it's explicit religious persecution. Across the board, the whole gambit. Be steadfast and don't misjudge your suffering. Remember that suffering is not always a response to sin in your life. The Bible teaches that time and time again. You can't just connect the dots. Oh, I must have done something wrong. No. As Phil Reichen goes on to say, sometimes Christians suffer for exactly the opposite reason. For the sake of righteousness. And sometimes God allows us to suffer, he says, Because he wants to be glorified through our suffering. So be steadfast and don't misjudge your suffering. What should you do? Ask God, how can I glorify you in this? 
You wake up and the problem's still there. The problem's worse. Lord, how can I live for your glory this day? Similar to the prayer of Nehemiah from chapter 1 that we're memorizing in the first few weeks of this summer. Lord, give heed to the prayers of your servants. Be steadfast. Don't misjudge your suffering. And finally, have faith in God's word. Have faith in God's son. Isn't that where Zechariah stumbled? His faith wavered. This episode is included because it is also a call to faith in God's promises. Faith that he will answer prayer. It takes faith to accept God's word. It takes faith to receive God's son. It takes faith to enter into salvation and to walk in the light of God's word. It takes faith. And maybe at this moment, there's some light of understanding that's coming to you or someone else. I am not the archangel Gabriel and you're not Zachariah. But I'm trying to convey to you God's word, God's holy word. And if it's the Holy Spirit who's bringing it to you now at this moment, if your eyes are opening and your surprise and awe is forming, believe. Put your faith in the truth of God's word. Put your faith in the truth of who God is and what he says he will do. Today is the day of salvation. Believe. Do not doubt. Do not stumble. Do not expect that God owes you another chance to understand. If the Lord draws near. Isaiah put it this way. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord. And he will have mercy on you and to our God, for he will freely pardon. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that someone has introduced us to Jesus. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we can have a copy of your word in our own language and we can read it. And we can see this story and see your great patience and mercy and grace at work that you hear and answer prayers of your people lord may we conform to the truth of your word may we believe may we be steadfast and may we keep praying father be at work in these difficult days we do ask for your glory in jesus name we pray amen